This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, April 5th, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. When the government seizes your property as having been used in a crime or proceeds from criminal behavior, shouldn't you have at least been convicted of something? Welcome to the world of civil asset forfeiture, where authorities take your property without charging you with or convicting you of anything, and then using the proceeds to boost their budgets. Scott Bullock is co-author of the new Institute for Justice report, Policing for Profit, the Abuse of Civil Asset Forfeiture. We spoke last week. When I was a reporter talking to the police, um, they treated a lot of their activities as very procedural by the book, as if they were not being influenced in any way by incentives that existed around them. And of course, it's ridiculous to assume that police departments do not make uh, choices about which laws to enforce fervently and which laws to sort of not worry about so much. Absolutely. Uh, Everyone responds to incentives, and government officials and police officers and prosecutors are no different from anyone else. And if the incentives are bad or are misguided, then it should not be surprising that uh, uh, those officials uh, respond accordingly. And when you give police and prosecutors, as so many states and the federal government do, a profit incentive to forfeit property, whereby if they forfeit property, they are allowed to keep that property or that currency and use it for their own benefit, it should not be surprising then that these laws are abused and used very aggressively by law enforcement to fund their own activities. Give me an example of how a forfeiture law, a civil forfeiture law functions. Well, I think it's important to point out from the outset that civil forfeiture is very different from criminal forfeiture. Criminal forfeiture can be abused, but most people certainly agree with the concept. If a person is convicted in court and the government shows that that person obtained their property through theft or some other type of illegal activity, then of course the government can take away that property. You don't want people benefiting from things that are violating the law. But that's very different from civil forfeiture, which is the focus of our report. Under civil forfeiture laws, the government can take your property, forfeit it permanently, permanently depriving you of it, regardless of whether or not you are convicted of any crime. They can even do this uh, without arresting you because the action is against the property itself. It's this bizarre legal fiction that allows the government to file Uh, lawsuits against property. That's why civil forfeiture actions have such bizarre titles like U.S. versus $10,500 in U.S. currency or state of New Jersey versus one uh, 2000 Ford Thunderbird. The actions are against the property. And when the property owner tries to get the property back, they really find themselves in this uh, upside down world where the government holds all the advantages and the burdens are all on the property owners to try to get it back. That's the exact opposite of in the criminal setting where the government has the burden to prove that you are guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. What is the extent of that problem at the state level in the United States today? 
It's a huge problem. Uh, over 40 states allow police and prosecutors to keep either all of uh, forfeited uh, property and proceeds or a good chunk of it. Uh, the federal government also allows uh, police and prosecutors to keep forfeited uh, property at the federal level. So it is really a nationwide problem. And our report found that only three states scored a B or higher, and most of the other states ranged from uh, mediocre to terrible forfeiture laws. So it is something that is happening throughout the country. It is a national problem and something that the courts and state legislatures need to address. Those three states are North Dakota, Maine, and, and Vermont. Vermont. That's right. Why? Well, those states, uh, I don't know why they, those states chose, thankfully, to, to provide greater protections for, for property owners. But what uh, those states really provide is strong procedural protections for property owners. The burden is more on the government. Uh, innocent owners are better protected in those states. And in all of those states, uh, there's no profit incentive. If, uh, there's, if civil forfeiture proceeds are collected, they either go to the general revenue account of the state where they should go, or to a neutral fund like drug treatment or education, not right back uh, into the coffers of the very people who are out there enforcing the law. Now, some states, even where they are prohibited from directly benefiting from proceeds that are seized, are able to uh, at some part of the process, call the federal government in to execute some portion of the raid that allows them to profit in a way that they otherwise could not. That's exactly right. And it's one of the major problems that our report addresses. Uh, it's uh, known as equitable sharing. And what the report really finds is that where laws make uh, forfeiture easier and more profitable, states tend to engage in more of it. And what the report also looked at is when states have stronger protections for property owners, uh, when there's not a profit incentive, then those states oftentimes work with the federal government to do an end run around state law uh, and then uh, pass along the forfeiture uh, action to the federal government. And under federal law, law enforcement uh, entities are entitled to keep the forfeiture proceeds. Uh, typically, the federal government keeps 20% of the forfeiture, and the other 80% is funneled back to state and local law enforcement. So it's really a loophole that allows this end run around uh, state requirements. Uh, it violates the will of citizens of that state and really violates federalism principles uh, as well. And it's, it's quite clear what law enforcement is, is doing. Uh, they're not respecting the laws of that state, and they're working with the federal government to try to get the property. And that's yet another reason why, uh, and too often under civil forfeiture, uh, police uh, really pro uh, prosecute for profit. What are some of the more egregious examples of this? Well, it, it manifests itself in many different ways. Uh, there are several examples in the report that, uh, uh, that we document where uh, law enforcement officials really stretch the definition of what constitutes law enforcement. So you have forfeiture proceeds being used to pay for re-election ads for district attorneys, for uh, football tickets, for entertainment expenses, for meals, for convention expenses, and so forth. And most of the laws in, in states are very broad. They just say it can be used, must be used for law enforcement purposes. And then police and prosecutors have broad to dis discretion to decide what uh, those expenses and what those law enforcement purposes might be. 
What we've also found, and one of the common ways that forfeiture is used now, uh, is not only against cars and homes and other types of, uh, of property, but one of the primary things that police are doing now is confiscating currency. It is really an unfortunate situation where if you have what is considered to be a more than normal amount of currency on you or in your car, the police can seize that currency, suspect you or accuse you of being uh, a drug dealer or engaging in money laundering, which is a typical charge that, uh, that they use, and they can seize that property, never arrest you, never charge you with a crime, never find any drugs or anything on your person or in your car, and that currency can still be seized for forfeiture. And then the burden shifts to you to try to get it back. You have to work your way through a Byzantine legal process. You have to hire a lawyer to try to figure out what your rights are. Uh, and then once you're at the trial, in most states, the burden is on you to try to show that you are an innocent owner. A lot of property owners can't afford to do this, uh, don't know what the, uh, their rights are, and they simply give up and the government wins by default. And we see this over and over again. Part of the reason the Fourth Amendment is written the way it is was to combat the trend of general warrants that had been issued by the British government. Uh, and in this case, in many of the cases that you're talking about, we don't even get to the point of there being a warrant issue. There's not a warrant. It's it's made, uh, it's based uh, in many instances entirely on the police officer's uh, uh, description uh, and suspicion of probable cause. Uh, and then um, once that property is seized, again, the burden shifts to the property owner to try to get it back. And if the property owner does not take those necessary steps, respond within a certain period of time, uh, do it in the right manner, uh, go to court, try to work their way through this system, again, in most places, the government can win by default. So a property owner can lose their property without ever getting a court hearing. Given the discretion that police have in these cases, it would seem that laws that allow this invite uh, racism, uh, and racial profiling. Well, there's no question that this disproportionately affects uh, uh, minorities. It, it, it disproportionately affects people who have uh, fewer resources uh, to fight back. And that's one of the really sad aspects of this. If you're a major drug kingpin or or uh, or uh, maybe a financier who's accused of bilking investors out of a lot of money, you might have the resources to fight a civil forfeiture action to try to preserve all or some of your property. But when the police confiscate $700 from you or or a used car that you might possess. Um, it's very difficult for people to gather up the resources and the time that is necessary to try to uh, to fight back against one of these things because the legal expenses will quickly exceed the value of the property. So it really does impact those who have the fewest means to challenge one of these things, and that is oftentimes lower-income people and minority groups. For reporters or citizen journalists or people who are just merely uh, very interested in the subject, what should they do? Well, they should be very concerned about uh, the civil forfeiture abuse, uh, and hopefully they'll read the report because the report is really an inaugural effort on our part to raise awareness about this issue, and we're going to combine the release of this report with follow-up litigation, with further, res with further research, uh, with legislative activity, with grassroots activism. So people should educate themselves about this law and demand changes uh, to it. There 
have been states that uh, have passed successful citizen uh, initiatives. Uh, there have been a cert certain states that have passed uh, stronger protections for property owners. Uh, but the one thing that law enforcement fights tooth and nail any attempt to change is this profit incentive. That's really what's at the heart of civil forfeiture uh, abuse. It's something that we're going to be directing a lot of our time and energies at. But civil forfeiture simply should not exist. People should not lose their property without being convicted of a crime. And certainly, police and prosecutors should not profit from their activities. To what extent do prosecutorial resources strengthen as a result of these kinds of laws as compared, I mean, you have a public defender, public defenders often make very little money to begin with. It is uh, odd to think that a prosecutor would forego prosecuting some other uh, violent crime in order to go after uh, these other issues to take property from people who haven't been convicted of anything. Well, that's uh, one of the major problems with these laws. It's really a perversion of law enforcement priorities. Uh, if you give somebody a range of options and you say, well, I could investigate this cold case, which has been sitting here for a long time and nothing's happening on it, but there's really not much to to gain from this, or it could go out and do prosecutions that could make my job uh, easier, uh, make my salary higher, uh, make my office nicer, then people are going to respond to those centers. And it shouldn't be surprising that police and prosecutors are devoting more resources to forfeiture and are relying on forfeiture to a greater extent, especially in tough budgetary times. We should take those incentives away. Police and prosecutors' work should be about the fair and impartial administration of justice. That's their oath. That's what many of them try to do. But if you give them the wrong incentives, they are going to respond accordingly, and it's going to be at the expense of private property rights. Scott Bullock is co-author of a new report from the Institute for Justice, Policing for Profit, The Abuse of Civil Asset Forfeiture. You can read more on asset forfeiture, the drug war, and the Fourth Amendment at Cato.org.